Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For today's episode, we are joined by Julia Metro. Julia, thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing good in California. It's a little hot today, but other than that, very good. Well, thank you for so much for coming on the show today. We're going to get into uh, really quickly the reasons why I brought you onto the show, because I have a, f- a few different reasons why I asked you to come on the show today. But first and foremost, just kind of give people an understanding of who you are. Uh, you are a journalist who has been involved in doing journalism for over 10 years now. Can you mm-hmm. just briefly just tell the people just uh, what made you decide to get into journalism and what types of pieces do you normally write about? Yeah, well, my start to journalism is a little boring. I started my high school paper um, when I was a freshman and I kept on going. I was an econ major for my first year of undergrad because I that's what uh, I my, both my parents are in business. So I'm like, OK, I'll do econ. Then I didn't like econ and I'm like, you know what, I like journalism. Um, Then I finished my undergrad with a degree in global studies and during my second half of undergrad I interned at a bunch of places and since I graduated in May 2020 I've been a freelance journalist. I do a lot of health reporting and what got me into health reporting is my lived experience with vasculitis. When I was 18, I developed an autoimmune disorder. I didn't know what it was for a year and a half. I was being told at hospital that maybe you have anxiety, maybe you have lupus. Um, and then I finally got diagnosed. And so I was diagnosed slightly after my 20th birthday. I'm 24 now. I still write about health journalism, but I'm passionate about a bunch of other topics. I also like weird cultural things too. But yeah, that's a little bit about me. You know, you kind of just stole my next question from me, but it's completely okay. That's actually the, the thing I wanted to lead into next. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just go into a little more detail about, about what is vasculitis? Because that's how I found you in the first place. You had made a, well, I, I found you previously, but I, I saw you make a post about vasculitis awareness and I, I wasn't sure what it was. And so I went and like read about what you had talked about. Uh, what exactly is it and how does it affect like your life and your ability to do your job? Yeah, so Vasculitis is actually a family of diseases. I have actually specifically have hypocomplementric urticarial vasculitis, which I am possibly also mispronouncing. It's a bit of a mouthful. So there's about 20 different kinds and like the different kinds, they vary based on which organs are affected. I'm fortunate now that I'm on medications like coltracine, uh, which help me manage, but On a day-to-day basis, I deal with a lot of severe fatigue. Um, When I'm in flares, I deal with pretty severe inflammation, which also affects my lungs to the point where I've been hospitalized um, and had to be put on oxygen, which has been very scary. Um, I haven't had that happen in a while, knock on wood, uh, but yeah, and it's been interesting to live with. I also deal with quite a bit of pain in my hands. I'm not exactly sure that's from me typing way too much as a person in general or from my vasculitis, probably a combination of the both. But on a day-to-day basis, it's 
It's difficult. I think what helped me is that I'm someone who generally likes writing and I like what I do. I wanted to be a journalist since, well, 14 could be a kid. So it's something that I've just kept on doing and I like doing and it's also led me to write different health stories. I think it's been helpful over the pandemic, which is still very much continuing for people like me who are high risk. Um, and also because uh, vasculitis is a blood vessel condition, I also have a lot of empathy for people who get COVID and who are now experiencing long COVID because while different conditions, I have dealt with many of the same symptoms, but yeah. Right, right. And that's, that's another thing I wanted to kind of go into like deeper with you uh, for a mm -hmm. second here. Uh, you had briefly kind of like mentioned your experience trying to just even get like a diagnosis for what you're going through. Uh, mm -hmm. What was your experience like with our healthcare system? Because we, we always hear about, you know, like how our healthcare system kind of like functions in America from like an outside perspective, but being, being in the process of trying to figure out what's like going on with you and trying to figure out like what you were experiencing, like how, how did that affect you and how long did that process really take? And what was it like? Yeah. I kind of joke about, but it is kind of awful. It took the entire North American continent to get me a diagnosis. I, so I am originally from Winnipeg. I lived there zero to six, then in Massachusetts, six to 18. When I was 18, I was, I went to McGill University for a year and a half, which was in Quebec. I was a new college student and I was also newly chronically ill and I was terrified at first. I got really sick and was hospitalized for about a week during midterms. Um, I think I had a very bad flare-up of my vasculitis due to a mix of stress from my first midterms in university, as well as it got really cold suddenly. And while I've always lived in cold areas before coming to California, where I am now, I had developed a chronic illness where whenever the temperature changes a lot, I got sick. I was, they did some testing. First they thought I had lupus. I know it's a joke that people are like, oh yeah, they it's always they always test for lupus in their defense. A nickname for my type of vasculitis is unusual lupus like syndrome. So like they had a point. I know they did some differential diagnosis and of course zero shame and stigma to people who have these conditions, but like. Um, I know that they tested me for syphilis and they also tested me for HIV, which I did not test positive for, but I think being an 18 year old and even knowing their testing for HIV um, was pretty scary. And then I was told I had anxiety. Um, something that quite a few people didn't know, I didn't know this. And also this was, I was in, in Quebec in second half of 2016 and 2017 the wait list if you're over 18 but still young to get into specialists can be way too long so I didn't get a rheumatologist while living in Quebec so when I was sick I would go to the ER the wait time the ER would sometimes be six to mm. ten hours unless wow. my oxygen level was below 90 percent they would let me in earlier if it was below 90 percent but if not they're like oh yeah you're in pain you're just in pain. Other people are there before they're going to go before you. And I'm like, of course, that there are obviously people who need to go before you in the emergency room. Of course, like there's always going to be people who are coming in and cardiac arrest and stuff like that. But 
I was waiting 10 hours, like sometimes when I, and I remember the last time I went, which was a 10 hour wait, I was like sitting in an uncomfortable hospital chair and my body was going between feeling nothing and feeling shock and then feeling pain and like that cycle. And then they took me back and then they're like, well, you have some inflammation. Well, it turns out my blood vessels are inflamed. So that was the issue. I, the summer between my first and second year, I'd started to see a rheumatologist. However, during the summer I wasn't flaring. So they couldn't take any tests to really diagnose me then. So it wasn't like a, but then my doctor, Massachusetts has asked um, some doctors in Quebec if they could test me, no one would. Then after I left McGill, I went on vacation to Puerto Vallarta. Then I had a very bad flare where my um, C-reactive protein, which is a measure of inflammation, was close to, I wouldn't say exactly, but close to range of someone who's had a heart attack or like a really bad infection. I was sick. I looked horrible. I was in the hospital for 10 days. However, a doctor looked at me and he's like, based on your age and your appearance, you either have lupus or vasculitis. I'm like, it's not lupus. They tested for vasculitis. I now that I've been diagnosed with vasculitis since then, that's been confirmed with every hospital I've been at since. Um, so yeah, that's been my journey. And like for me, it was only a year and a half, but I was sick. Even though, and I hate to say only a year and a half, but the truth is like some people wait like 10 years to get a diagnosis with certain chronic illness. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, no, that's um that's unfortunately true. I, uh, I happen to know from certain experiences, the, uh, the healthcare system can be atrocious at finding diagnoses for people. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to just besides challenges with dealing with our medical system, have you also experienced any challenges, I guess, like in your time as a journalist in the sense of like, you know, working with uh, other people, maybe like, uh, people in the, you know, workplace environment or in school environment who just didn't understand what you were going through or, uh, didn't respect the, the kind of challenges that you might be facing with vasculitis? Yeah, so I've been freelance. Um, I've had gigs, but it's been mostly flexible. I think I've been very hard on myself at times because I experience, especially when I'm flaring, but honestly, multiple times a week, pretty significant brain fog. I normally get a little grade fever at least once a week um, due to vasculitis. And it's like, I get mad at myself because I'm like, you're not doing anything. Um, I think that my frustrations was at school, was in grad school has more been about COVID um, just because it's not over. I think that we know nothing about long COVID. And I don't think that we should, even if COVID vaccines and boosters are lowering the chance. I say as someone who has a blood vessel, a chronic blood vessel condition, even though we're still learning how long COVID works, it is triggered by a blood vessel disease. It's not easy to manage. And while like, of course, there's nothing wrong with having a disability. I've had other disabilities before developing this one. Um, Like I was born with a mild to moderate hearing loss, but there's a difference. It's hard to navigate being sick often. And it's hard navigating being sick in a profession where you're always supposed to be on. Like, I don't really do breaking news, but I 
forget his name, but you know the Mac guy for CNN? Steve Kornacki. No, the other, that's MSNBC. But oh. oh, yes. Um, I, I forget what his name is, you but yes. fill in the blank. I do not mean to forget his name, but I'm fairly sure after the last presidential election, yeah. he, he said that like, oh yeah, I have multiple sclerosis. And if you saw me like not doing well towards the end, that's it. And I'm just like, oh my God, someone who's chronically somehow worked those hours. Um, I feel bad possibly that, of course, I don't know him personally, so I can't say whether or not he felt forced to do it. But I think that like for me personally, I don't think I could ever be a straight political reporter because those hours, especially uh, near election time, it's just not good for taking care of yourself. Even if you don't already have physical health conditions, I think that we all saw how often Steve Kornacki is very passionate about his job was literally not, well, I wouldn't say maybe sleeping a few hours a night at most and working like 20 hours a day. Our bodies aren't made to do that. And so, oh. no, like, I feel like for me, it's also, I, there's some things in journalism that like I could want to do, but I'm like, you know what, that's not the best for me. So I'd say political reporting, if it comes to the expectation that I can't rest, is not the field for me, but. Yeah. You know what? It, it's it's interesting because rest is something that has been completely. I, I think, I think prior to the start of the pandemic, you know, we have been living in a time where people we've just been like working our population to death, and mm -hmm. people didn't really understand the the true nature of how important it is to rest. And now people are finally like I think appreciating that more now that people did have to spend some time more at home um, throughout this pandemic. But, but speaking of the pandemic, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about now specifically is for someone like who has, you know, the condition that you have, how has it been living through this pandemic? Because as we know, you know, this does affect people who are in a quote unquote, like higher risk category more than everyone else. So specifically, how has it been like for you navigating through this? Yeah, it was a lot of it unknown at first. I have a friend who's from, I was in New York City, actually. Uh, right as the right as it hit there by the friend from Wuhan and I asked him okay should I ignore what American leadership is saying and stay inside he's like yes do that so like I was already I guess careful going into it then I went back to Massachusetts I was part of the exodus from New York um, just because I knew I could stay inside more my doctor also agreed that was probably safer for me um, I also say I'm probably luckier than many people with vasculitis is that I don't have active organ involvement at the moment. I sometimes, my lungs get triggered by smoke, secondhand smoke, some other things, but it's like, I'm not dealing with going to dialysis for my kidneys every, so I, so there's definitely people with vasculitis who, definitely are more danger. I, so essentially I wasn't allowed in Massachusetts. I would have been able to, if I stayed in New York, I think one thing that's been wild, just looking at also COVID-19 vaccine distribution is that it changed so much per state. So like if I stayed in New York, I would have been able to get it mid February, 2020, but in Massachusetts, it wasn't until April, 2020, which 
is still extremely early in the scheme of the world. Um, I think one thing I'm always thinking about is how research has shown that a lot of these variants likely developed in people with immune systems who aren't great like mine. And yet we didn't give, we, vaccine access around the world is horrible. So what if we just shared the vaccine earlier? We would, there's a possibility we won't be dealing with this. But back to, um, yeah, and so there was a lot of unknown to just like, hmm, how high risk am I? And then in November, 2021, there was a study that came out from the, either says the Lancet or the Lancet, I always forget, but it's a huge um, health journal. Um, and there was a study that was done internationally and they found that people with vasculitis prior to getting vaccinated have a 15% mortality rate, which oh, is wow. very high. And that is because our blood vessels are already inflamed. I have not gotten COVID yet. I, of course, like there's no shame in catching an infectious disease. It is infectious, that is how it works. Um, but I also really do not want to try, even though I am double vaccinated and double boosted, I don't want to tr do trial and error myself to see how sick I would, I could possibly get. And also I say as someone who's learned to somewhat manage her vasculitis um, since being on prednisone, being on colchicine, I don't want to have all that work undone because I am feeling better than I was a few years ago. And I don't want to have to deal with going back through that journey. Makes perfect sense to me. And mm -hmm. I definitely want to ask you about, you know, this is a political podcast. So we have to yeah. ask you about how our government's response to COVID has impacted, uh, impacted this country. But before we do that, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have more questions with Julia. Stay tuned. Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. 
You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So before the break, we were talking about, you know, the pandemic and how it affected you specifically. I kind of want to turn the gear a little bit now towards like our, towards our government. You know, there was a lot of criticism uh, from both administrations about how they handled the pandemic, uh, specifically for you, maybe not just with the pandemic, but maybe just an overarching idea in general. How has, you know, the government kind of like, um, how has their actions or inactions like affected people with disabilities during this time? And what do you think they should have been doing differently? I think at a bare minimum, I think this is what we more need to do as a society with many issues. If someone tells you they're being harmed, listen to them and don't discard it automatically. I know that there has been a lot of this disability advocacy organizations. While I'm a journalist, I don't personally consider myself to be an activist. I consider myself to be a journalist who has lived with chronic illness and tweets without a filter. Um, but there have just been a lot of things that have been dropped. Um, mask mandates being a huge example of them. I and personally, I'm very disheartened every time I hear of a story of an outbreak that could have been prevented just because when we know there's outbreaks related to government events, we know the politicians are going to be taken care of. We don't know if anyone else is going to be taken care of. There was a dinner, I think, at this place called Gridian um, a few months back. I could be totally butchering the name. It was with Democratic politicians and um, some journalists. There was a huge up. There was I wouldn't say huge because I don't technically remember the quantification on top of my head. Pelosi got COVID from that. Then there was also an outbreak at the White House correspondence dinner. People got COVID, and so I just have a lot of questions about also not just a failure of policy, but a failure of being a member of the community who wants to protect other people. Like for example, like whenever you see those happen, I'm like, okay, do the servers who were working that night, do they even have health insurance from their employers? Do they, would they get access to healthcare? What barriers do they have? Because when we hear, when I would say probably significant, like a congressperson or a governor, someone like that gets COVID, they get the antiviral drug, they get very good care. Not everyone gets very good care. And so that's been something that's frustrating me just because it's like, okay, we can, I wouldn't automatically call most politicians selfless people. Um, and I think that how many of them have been acting in recent months, Democrats included, have been showing that they're not willing to protect members of their community. I am grateful whenever I see something, I forget where, I say it might've been the State of the Union dress or something. I saw Senator Ed Markey, who was my former Senator and I was in Massachusetts. I believe he's one of like five people wearing a mask of like, yeah. 
of like members of the Senate. And it's like, and he tweeted something about, he's like, yeah, I'm wearing a mask because we're still in a pandemic. I'm like, thank you for tweeting the obvious, but it almost has to be the obvious. Um, yeah, and it's just like, we know that if we don't have measures to stop COVID, it spreads. How many times do we need a new variant to show that's how COVID works? People shouldn't have to die or get very sick or even get mildly sick and now have a chronic illness for evidence. Like how much evidence is enough? Because we have the evidence. That's a question I've unfortunately been asking myself a lot recently with uh, recent gun issues in our country, but I'll save that for another conversation. Uh, when it comes to being a journalist, I, I kind of want to tilt back to this for you for a second. What is, um, what is a story that you've done recently that you wish more people were aware of? Yeah, I'm trying to think of, I have some stories in progress, but I don't want to jinx anything until they come out. Um, I can talk about I'm also trying to think, hmm, what have I, what, what has come out for me recently? I, well, I could say one story that, I apologize, I do not have this. Oh, it's okay. You know, recently for myself, I've had several mm -hmm. stories that I've covered, you know, like on my podcast that I felt like were incredibly, you know, like, um, just important to me, you know, thinking about yeah. like stories happening in Afghanistan, stories happening, you know, here in America with, you know, with guns and, you know, with the filibuster talking about legislation coming through. There's always certain, I guess, stories that I feel like you just get personally attached to because of how, I guess, just how ridiculous some of the circumstances are surrounding the stories themselves and trying to just amplify certain people's voices. Has there been something like that in particular for you recently? Yeah, I I wouldn't say it fits exactly that, but and it was definitely a short story because I ran a JSTOR daily in their short blogs, but I definitely wanted to find an example of Americans helping another country to not their own self-gain, particularly in Russia, right when the war in Ukraine was starting. Because I think we, I wouldn't say we, because not everyone agrees with me, but like the US has definitely involves themselves in foreign affairs to their own self-interest. Um, I personally, as someone, so half my family, my ancestors are from what's now Belarus and Poland and like they fled. And so like, there are definitely issues with existing anti-Semitism and other issues in Russia and former country that you see part of the USSR that like really bother me as a person. I found an example of, so essentially in around the 1920s, um, New York Jews, a lot, quite a few were immigrants themselves from Eastern Europe or their parents before them. I found that there's evidence that they used to sneak organizing materials for like labor rights in Yiddish into Russia to oh, help wow. Jews organize there and that started like a mini labor movement among Jews in Eastern Europe. Um, and I, although it was short and didn't involve like really any reporting from my end, it just seemed like an important example to me of like people wanting to help people who were still part of their community in not a way that the original person had like their self-interest. 
because it was just because they wanted to help these people from this area of the world that they come from get labor rights and right it kind of worked yeah i mean that's that's a fascinating story i honestly you know as someone who spent a little bit of time covering you know what happened over in you know in russia and ukraine over the the last few months that's been really interesting to me kind of like learning more about that region because it's a region that i just didn't know that much about uh, i want to kind of like shift back towards uh, the conversation we were having before though just as like our final question here you know when it comes to this whole conversation we were talking a lot about disabilities uh, how it's impacted you how it's impacted your life how it's impacting society what what is it that you wish that people who don't have a disability at all kind of like knew about people with disabilities as somebody yourself who writes a lot of pieces about people who are experiencing disabilities and why is it important to talk about this subject so much? Yeah, I think there are a few several reasons that I'll kind of spit out. The first thing is I think it's important to recognize both for people who consider them disabled and those who don't is that a lot of people benefit from accessibility, um, even if they don't consider themselves to be part of the disability community. Um, I also know people who have health conditions which could be considered to be disabilities who don't consider them to be part of the disability community. And that's of course, it's a choice, but everyone benefits from accessibility. Um, there's something called inclusive design where, you know, on sidewalks where they kind of dip a little bit when, when you go up, that's yeah. like an example of something being made for, for example, someone in a wheelchair, but it helps everyone. Um, and so I think thinking about accessibility is great. I also think that it's important to have, of course, recognizing that disability is a spectrum and that people also have a spectrum of feelings about disability. I, you shouldn't feel bad for someone because they have a diagnosis. Um, you shouldn't, for example, um, think that their life isn't worth it. I think that it's, this is something going in Canada and it's something that just with everything happening in the US these past few weeks, I don't consider myself to be an expert on by any means, but Canada has expanded MAID, uh, medical assisted in death. Um, I think that's what it's called. It's so essentially waiting a few years or waiting a long time for healthcare if you're chronically ill, the reason that you would be approved for um, medical assistance and dying. That I think is incredibly problematic because like I, of course people can and should make their own choices, but you that shouldn't be the only option when the issue is wait times. Right. Um, and so I think that, and I think that why would, who are the politicians, who are the policymakers who thought that this was the suitable alternative do they not see that people's lives, the people who are chronically ill and disabled as not being worthy? Um, because a lot of us live incredibly worthy lives and you just need more accessibility. Um, some people might need more support from their community, but of course, like don't touch anyone without their permission as some people do that. Um, Unfortunately, should we go without saying, ask for consent. But I think that, and a note that I want to end on about 
disability and COVID and all this stuff, and I'm probably gonna misquote this, is that there was a piece from Ed Young in The Atlantic that roughly said that when you're caring about disability and chronic illness and the high-risk people, and you're making changes within that space, you're caring for your future self and like the future self of those around you, just because with what we know with aging, even if you don't have a disability or now, you're likely gonna develop health-related issues as you age. And so right. like, it's also like, if people wanna be selfish, if people want to be selfish about COVID and long COVID, why not take COVID seriously? That's also what I, that's what I think too. Cause it's like, you might be dealing with complications down the road. Be selfish. Stay inside. I wouldn't say necessarily always stay inside, but like take precautions. It's like, you should care for people who are medically vulnerable, of course, but you can also do it for yourself. Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate you coming on and talking to us about your experience with Ascolitis and, you know, mm -hmm. the work that you've done as a journalist. Where can people find out more about you online after this? Yes. Yeah, so I, there's only one other person with my name and she's like no social media footprint. So I am very Googleable. I know she runs a bed and breakfast with her husband in Switzerland. Um, but you can find me on Twitter. It's Metro, so M-E-T-R-A-U-X underscore Julia. And my Instagram is Julia.M-E-T-R-A-U-X. Also just to like give a precaution, I don't give medical advice personally for vasculitis. I will send you all the links. However, if you ask me any questions, um, but yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. And for those who are interested, those links will be in the episode description right now. If you liked this episode, please go ahead and share it on social media on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, tag independent thought. Uh, definitely send me a DM afterwards. Tell me what you thought of the episode. Thank you so much for everyone who came to the to independent thoughts today. We will see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.